Jen, it's interesting that Black Elsie carried a razor because that prompts memories of why cutthroat razors became so popular with the criminal classes in that era between the wars. He harboured a shocking secret that he took to the grave, which is that he had this secret double identity. He was the first of seven people to try to assassinate Queen Victoria. Welcome to a bonus episode of Life and Crimes with Andrew Rule. Today we have special guest Jen Kelly. Welcome, Jen. Great to be here. Thanks, Andrew. Jen, of course, is the Herald Sun's in black and white columnist, and she has a brand new podcast. Yes, it's called In Black and White, like the column, and it tells the untold stories of some of Melbourne's forgotten characters. Including some bad ones. Including some rather unsavoury types, which may be of interest to you, Andrew. Oh, thanks for that. One that always intrigued me was the story of Black Elsie. Yeah, so she's a woman that we've written quite a few stories about over the last few years because lots of people who are still alive who remember her from the streets of North Melbourne from the 1930s and the early 1940s. So she was quite a notorious figure. She became this sort of figure of fear because people knew about her violent reputation. She was this erratic and violent drunk. So she was a black woman. Aboriginal, Indigenous. That's actually one of the mysteries that we investigate in the podcast. Everyone believed that she was American. She told people she was American. She spoke with an American accent. She claimed that she'd come over from America as a singer. And she sang with a group called the Fisk Jubilee Singers, which sang slave-era spirituals and toured all around Australia. But as we found out in our investigations, that was far from the truth. She certainly was an American. She was actually born in Bendigo. This is interesting. Yeah. So we don't quite know where the American accent came from. She had a West Indian background. So her parents had a, a West Indian heritage And uh, it may be that when she travelled Australia with the Fisk Jubilee singers, they kind of had these invented personas for their stage performers. So it may have been that they claimed that she'd come from America and that she was a black American and that became part of the story. There was one uh, performance when she was at the Williamstown Mechanics Hall where she was billed as Elsa Carr, the coloured nightingale. So perhaps she continued that American persona and accent for the rest of her life. Excellent. That's a great story. There, there is a chance she did come from Bendigo, I think, because there was a group of uh, black Americans who came across in the gold era who married and had children up there, and one of them was a forebear of Colin Hewitt. So there, there certainly was a group of American extraction around Bendigo who could sing. So who knows, she might have been one of them. Absolutely, yes. She was certainly born in Bendigo and her early life was quite normal. So she was from a sort of church-going family. Dad had a decent job. They went to school. They were involved in the lodge. But things started to go awry when she was six and her mother died and that left her father with six children to raise. Then the family's home burnt down in mysterious circumstances just a few months afterwards And soon afterwards, he never really recovered and he went bankrupt and they ended up coming to Melbourne, to Coburg, and and he tried to start up his life again, but they never really recovered after that. And that was really the beginning of the troubles for her. But somehow, despite that, after her schooling, she managed to start this life on the stage. And she actually had a fair degree of success. She was apparently a remarkable singer and fiercely intelligent. There's some wonderful reviews. And uh, she did travel all, all over Australia on the stage. But then the Depression hit. And in the 1930s, 
when unemployment went to 30%, people stopped having money to go out to see shows. And that's when her career dived, just when she was really on the cusp of fame. Violence and alcohol had already been part of her life for some time before that. And by the 1930s, that's when she ended up living in Dudley Flats, which was a shanty town where the Docklands are today, pretty close to where the the big observation wheel is. And uh, really, after that, it was just a a life of of crime and drunkenness. It just got worse. What surname did she use mostly? What names was she charged under when she was charged with crimes? She was born Elsie Carr, but she actually married when she was 18, when she was living in Sydney for a brief time, to a sailor whose last name was Williams. So then she became Elsie Williams. That's what we know her as mostly. But he, seemed, he seems to have disappeared off the scene pretty quickly. It wasn't part of her life for very long. She never had children. And then she came back to Melbourne. So Elsie Williams was her real name, but you'll generally find that Black Elsie was the name that she was saddled with for the rest of her life. Now, Elsie did commit a few crimes, I understand. What were the ones that you know about? Probably the best known one was that she slashed the face of a tram conductor on a tram with a razor. So going back to when she was in her early 20s in Sydney, she used to keep a razor in her stocking, which was apparently for protection. And so in this notorious incident, she'd slashed the face of a conductor. And this became known to all the residents around North Melbourne. So when she was living in Dudley Flat, sometimes she'd get horrendously drunk and wander off into the streets of North Melbourne where she'd inevitably create chaos for the local residents. And families would warn their little kids about her and say, stay away from Black Elsie. She's trouble. She's slashed the face of a tram conductor. You don't want anything to do with her. Stay away. Pretty good advice, really. Yeah. Jen, it's interesting that Black Elsie carried a razor because it prompts memories of why cutthroat razors became so popular with the criminal classes in that era between the wars. I understand that from my great-grandfather, who was a policeman in those days, that handguns became illegal in about 1927. Before that date, you could basically buy a handgun the way you could buy any other ordinary gun, just at the hardware store or anywhere else. But in 1927, the government moved to crack down on the ease of acquisition of handguns, and it was then that crooks and criminals, bad guys, started to carry razors more than they had. There had, of course, already been razor gangs in the earlier days, but razors became far more popular because you wouldn't be banged up in jail for as long as if you were caught with a handgun. And so it fits into that pattern of criminal behaviour, which, of course, went out of fashion with the introduction of safety razors. So one of the policemen who knew her really well was Jack Dyer, Captain Blood of Richmond fame. So in the 1930s, he was playing for Richmond then, but this was in the days when being a footballer was not a full-time profession. He didn't earn enough money from it. So he worked full-time as a policeman. He was based at West Melbourne Police Station. And he and Elsie developed this friendship of sorts, this sort of mutual bond. She'd wander off into the streets of North Melbourne. He'd get a call at West Melbourne Police Station to say she was out there on the streets causing trouble. So he'd go and find her and he would escort her back to her home at Dudley Flats and they'd have these long conversations. So she appreciated the fact that he treated her with respect and in return apparently there were these wild mushrooms growing everywhere at Dudley Flats which was this wasteland. It was really no more than a rubbish dump with a few houses on it or a few little huts on it and these wild mushrooms would grow profusely there. So she would pick all these mushrooms and give them to Jack Dyer as a gift 
and he says in, in his autobiography he would never eat them because of where they'd been grown, but he'd often give a bag to a Collingwood supporter. Oh, very good. <laughs> Undoubtedly, this- that'll be true. <laughs> So they had this lovely relationship and what that meant was that Black Halsey would stand up for Jack Dyer when he came down to Dudley Flats. So Dudley Flats was part of the area that he had to patrol as a young constable and there was always trouble breaking out there. This was people who were homeless, lost their jobs, lost their homes, turned to alcohol and uh, were just trying to make a living off the nearby tips. The the fruit and vegetable growers would, would dump their waste down at the tip and that's how they managed to survive. They'd get the food scraps, they'd find scrap iron, sell that to a dealer and that's how they eked out a living down there at Dudley Flats. So there was always violence down there. Jack Dyer was always down there breaking up trouble. But Black Elsie was his mate. So there was one notorious incident where Jack Dyer writes about this in his autobiography and he said there was his big guy was causing trouble. He'd gone berserk. So Constable Dyer was called down there to break it up. This guy's called in 40 backups and there's this mob of 40 guys that have got it in, got it in for him. Jack Dyer thought it was his last day. He wasn't going to be playing for the Tigers again that weekend. And Black Elsie's come charging in saying, you leave him alone. He's my mate. He treats us with respect. Oh, beautiful. And that was it. So that's how he managed to live another day, play another match for us. For us. For us. For the Tigers. <laughs> yes. You're not at all biased. Not all biased in this story, no. <laughs> so that's the story of Black Elsie, uh, except for one thing. When did she die and how did it, how did it end for her? She died in 1942. She was only 41. She died from a combination of alcoholism and chronic kidney disease. And it was a very, very sad death. So there's a woman that we speak to in the podcast called Phyllis McElveney, she is still living in Melbourne and she was about nine or ten when she first came across Black Elsie going crazy on the streets of North Melbourne. And she and a couple of girlfriends were out on a Sunday just scavenging at the tip because it was wartime. There wasn't much to do. This is what you'd do for fun. You'd go to the tip and look for treasures. And they've come across Black Elsie lying on this huge smouldering pile of vegetable scraps and rubbish lying there in pain, crying, badly burned, bitten by rats and just begging for help, begging for water. So, Jen, can we listen to a bit of this podcast? That's actually the the story that we are going to play a, a little excerpt from the podcast now and it begins with Phil. A troubled young woman, her evil parents... We never had any issues between us. Has justice been done? I'm in a prison. Join journalist Richard Gilliatt as he delves into one of Australia's most gripping cases. Shadow of Doubt, a new podcast investigation from The Australian. I cannot find one of these allegations that's possible. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts. Alice's recollection of the first time that she saw Black Halsey while outside a church jumble sale in North Melbourne. We went across the road and of course there was Black Elsie outside the front and she was screaming her head off, calling everybody names and actually hating the world. And Mum said, oh, that's Black Elsie. And I said, who's Black Elsie? Mum said, you keep right away from her. If you ever see her, you run the other way. She carries a razor in her stocking. Not a razor blade, a razor in her stocking. 
And if, if, you, if you upset her or speak to her, she'll cut your face. Elsie terrified the local kids, but that didn't stop three of them trying to save her life in her dying days. Sometime after that first encounter, Phyllis saw Elsie one last time. It was wartime, times were tight, and Phyllis and two friends were down at the local tip, scavenging for treasures. Phyllis, Patty and Shirley found Elsie lying on a huge, smouldering pile of vegetable scraps and rubbish. She was bleeding, burned and badly bitten by rats. We just went over there on a Sunday morning, something to do. Off we went, have a look at the tip, and there she was. There was this woman just lying there. She was on the whole pile of um, cabbage leaves and she was in a terrible mess, a terrible mess. She was, her skin was grey. She looked as if she'd been beaten, badly beaten, and she was bleeding on the legs and she looked as if she'd rolled in, in, rolled in fire. And she said she was crying, very crying, and she was hungry and she was thirsty and she wanted a drink. And uh, um, it was Patty and Shirley, they tried to comfort her and uh, see what they could do and they promised they'd bring, go home, get some food and some drink and bring it back to her. I just wouldn't even go near, I, I just, you know, backed off. Was that because but, you were so scared of her? Yes, I was, well... Yeah, because not only that, she looked so dreadful. She was horrifying, really, you know. Mm. I was sort of horrified to look at her. She looked so bad. She was so badly beaten. Mm. And And could you see what was her face bruised when you say she was badly beaten? Swollen. Swollen, just swollen. But, of course, I wouldn't look at her, so I turned away. And I, I, I really was... I feel ashamed now that, you know, I couldn't... I felt no no sympathy, just just horror. Do you remember any of the words that she no. said? No. Oh, my man, my man punched me, she said. My man punched me. We had a fight. And uh, and she said the, the rats had come and eaten her, eaten her legs. She said she'd been there all night. So I should just mention that after that, Phyllis did run off home to get food for Elsie. But when her mother realised that she'd been at the tip, Phyllis wasn't allowed to go out again. And for the past 76 years, Phyllis has believed that her friend's mother called an ambulance and that the ambulance then took Elsie to hospital and that she died in relative comfort. It was only a few months ago that Phyllis was shocked to learn the terrible truth about what really happened to Elsie next and how she died. And that's what we'll talk about in the podcast. Jen, you've told us about Black Elsie. There have been many other characters in Melbourne streets who have since made it to the columns of In Black and White. I think one of them might have been John Freeman, who might have contributed to the Argus at different times. Can you tell us about him? Absolutely, yes. And what the Argus is? So, yes, he did write for the Argus, which was a newspaper in Melbourne at the time. So John Freeman was really a very ordinary man. He was a house painter. He was a church warden. He wrote for the Argus. He was a family man. This is going back to the late 1800s. 
But he harboured a shocking secret that he took to the grave, which is that he had this secret double identity. So 40 years earlier, he was the first of seven people to try to assassinate Queen Victoria. He had shot at her while she was out for a carriage ride with her new husband, Prince Albert, around the streets uh, outside Buckingham Palace. Yeah, so he was born in Birmingham, moved to London, uh, lived a, a very poor life. He had a very violent childhood. His father was very violent, um, but otherwise just an ordinary boy. So he was 18 years of age. Queen Victoria was only 21, so only three years older than him. And uh, he just took it upon himself one day to go and see her when she was out for this regular carriage ride, screaming crowds, cheering on the Queen and Prince Albert as they took their carriage ride. And then he's just stepped out from the crowd and pulled a pistol out from under his coat and shot at her. And uh, he's been grabbed straight away. Someone actually grabbed the, the gun off him and then the rest of the crowd thought the person who'd grabbed the gun was the culprit, so they pounced on him. And this bloke has jumped out and said, no, it was me, it was me. So he wanted to take credit for it. He wanted to be nabbed for it. He wanted to be notorious, as it later turned out. So he was taken to the police station. He was locked up. There was a trial. It was eventually deemed that he was insane, so not guilty for reason of insanity. And he was locked up in mental asylums for 27 years. 27 years. And then what happened next? It became pretty obvious that he wasn't insane at all. So people have said that he was actually the most sane inmate of everyone in the mental asylum. Including the guards. Yes, (laughs) exactly. So eventually a deal was made that he could leave the mental asylum provided he left England and never came back again. And, of course, he readily agreed to this, having lived through some pretty primitive conditions of mental asylums at that time. So he jumped on a ship and he came out to Melbourne and he had a new name, which is John Freeman. So his real name was Edward Oxford. Oh, But he came to Melbourne under this new name that he'd created for himself, which was John Freeman. John Freeman arrived with just a few pounds to his name, nothing else, and set about creating this brand new life. He married a woman, so he had two stepchildren who he helped raise and was a wonderful family man. He worked as a house painter. He worked his way up in the church, was very respected as a church warden. He used to find interesting things on the streets of Melbourne and he would go and write stories about it and then he would go along to the Argus newspaper and sell his story. In the end, he wrote a book combining some of these insights about life in Melbourne because there was a big market in England for, for this kind of writing about, about life far away. So, But as far as we know, he took the secret to the grave. He died in 1900 in his 70s, which was the year before Queen Victoria died. And no one ever knew. There's no indication on his gravestone. And it's only actually come to light in the last few years as a result of some research done by a Melbourne author called Jenny Sinclair, who we've spoken to as well. Jen, we're going to look at some of your other stories, or at least one of them. One of the most intriguing stories I've heard of recently is a story of a woman called Alice Anderson, who I think was a, a female mechanic back when there was no such thing. Is that true? Exactly. She was a mechanic and she was more than that. She was really a motoring entrepreneur 
in the the early 1900s when cars were quite new in Melbourne. And uh, she began an all-girl garage in Kew during World War I. And it was a booming business. So they weren't just mechanics. They were also chauffeurs. So they would p- take people on trips out to the Dandenongs for the day in one of their hire cars. They were also driving instructors. It was a time when men, lots of men were away at World War I. So women had this newfound independence and lots of them wanted to get behind the wheel. So the appeal... The appeal was that lots of women wanted to be taught by a female driving instructor, which was why the business was so successful. Uh, She was also known as an adventurer, and her most famous trip was in a little baby Austin on this huge road trip on and off road all the way from Melbourne to Alice Springs. And that was quite famous at the time. It was in all the newspapers, and she succeeded in making it all the way there and then came back to Melbourne. But the intriguing part of this story is that she had borrowed a gun from a friend for protection for this trip. And so she got back to Melbourne, got back to work at the garage. And one day she was out the back in the garage, cleaning the gun, ready to return it to her friend. When all of a sudden, a couple of the other girls, the workers at the garage out the front, heard a bang, heard a shot, and they've raced back and found her dead at the age of 29. There was an inquest and what was found was that she shot herself accidentally while cleaning this gun. But there's a book that's just come out by a Melbourne author called Loretta Smith who's gone back through the inquest, through the family records, and it turns out that that's almost certainly not the case, that someone else was responsible for her death. Tell us more about the podcast series and where people can get it. It's called In Black and White and it's out now on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. The first episode is available right now and that's about Black Elsie. Read my column in the Sunday Herald Sun and online at heraldsun.com.au. Hi, it's Lauren Wood here from the Super Footy Podcast. We'll be here each and every Wednesday, wherever you get your podcasts, with all of the action from across the AFL. News, views and the biggest issues from across the game here at the Herald Sun. Access a world of true crime podcasts on CrimeX Plus, where award-winning journalists take a deep dive into unsolved cases. Every week we're waking up to a dead woman, a dead mother, sister, auntie, grandmother. It's not good enough. From the team that brought you The Teacher's Pet, Shadow of Doubt and Dying Rose, unlock early, ad-free and bonus content from brand new series and flagship shows such as I Catch Killers with Gary Jubilin. One was shot in the mouth and I thought he was dead. Another one had been shot with a shotgun and I got the overspray. Search for Crimex Plus on Apple Podcasts to start digging deep into the world of true crime.